Thank you for tuning in to our Bear Creek AG podcast. You are about to listen to our weekly Bible study with Pastor Tony. Thanks for joining in. All righty. Well, we're going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. Uh, last week, we were not able to finish chapter 7. And actually, I think this is going to be our third week in chapter 7. And, and that's okay. The idea is not to finish the chapter uh, just in a week. But the idea is to try to grasp the, what the Holy Spirit is telling us through the Apostle Paul. He's, he's writing to this church in, in Corinth. Um, Last week, we, we looked at several different subject matter. It's, it's, one, it's one theme, it's one thought through this chapter, but it's basically dealing with marriage, remarriage, singleness, widowness, in the sense of the question was, was brought before Paul through, through letter form you know, about marriage, about being married to someone who... Um, is, is not a believer. And so Paul is, and I'm not going to rehash everything, but basically Paul brings it to their attention. He says there are certain things that God commands that there's not even a question about, but there's some things that really, not that they're not covered, but they're not directly covered. But so I'm going to speak to them as your apostle, as your spiritual father, and I'm going to speak to these things. And basically he came down to the point that, listen, if you're saved and your spouse is unsaved, no, you don't. If you can live in peace, don't leave them. Um, and, and just be content with where God's planted you and what He's called you to at this time. Um, there, there's several reasons for this, he said. One of the reasons is because, hey, you don't know if you might not win them for the kingdom. Maybe this is part of God's way of not just reaching you for the kingdom, but reaching your spouse. Not to mention you have kids that are involved with this, so don't forget that you're going to be able to have a godly influence on those kids. And, and, and brother... Um, Gerald brought up a point last week, and we kind of batted this around, and, and there is a bigger picture that Paul covers in chapter 6 that is definitely implied in chapter 7 that will definitely be implied through 8, 9, and 10 as he deals with foods offered to idols. There's another big picture of what? What about those who are unbelievers? What are they seeing? What are you modeling for them? What are, what are, what are they witnessing through your life? And so... So Paul is really coming down to this, and, and he's trying to encourage this church, trying to help them. This is a legitimate question. That's what I'm saying. This isn't, this isn't something they're just trying to, 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 to... Maybe some of the motive is, hey, I want to get rid of this spouse, you know. But really, it's like, hey, this is new to us. What do we do? And we're going to find tonight as we get to chapter 8, which we will, it's a, it's, the same, it's a similar situation, just not dealing with marriage. Now, in verse 25, we're going to pick up there, and he's going to talk about virgins. He says, now about virgins... I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Okay, Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want... To spare you of this. I'm trying to spare you of this. So the Lord didn't give Paul this commandment. He's not, it's, not as if, it's not as if the Lord through, his, through the Old Testament or from what Paul has encountered personally with the Lord, he's saying, do this. But it's more the idea that Paul says, hey, listen, as your spiritual father, I I'm want to give what I feel like the Holy Spirit has inspired me. And I say that to say this. Sometimes when Paul uses this, I've heard people say, well, then I don't have to live by that. But what makes his writing here any less inspirational than any of his other books that he's written to the churches? He's just trying to say, look, 
God has commanded in certain areas here, this is how you handle marriage. Now, he didn't, handle, he didn't give you a direct command here, but this is what I see. This is, this is the counsel of the Holy Spirit that I'm going to give to you. And I'm not trying to read between lines or add to, but I don't think Paul is here trying to deceive. I think Paul here is really trying to help this church through this time with these, these things that they're facing and that nobody else has faced. I mean, they're facing it for, their, for the first time. So he says, trust me in this. Now, he mentions a crisis. Any idea what the crisis might be? And he's going to talk about the reality of a crisis in, in a few moments. But what might be the crisis? Is in, uh, well, part of it's unnatural yoke, but he's, he's saying, coming. I would say yes, brother, in the sense that if you're not married, don't seek to be married, especially, and I'm reading into it here, especially if it's, if it's an unsaved, a non-believer. But he, he gives us in those verses that I just read, he says, he, he says uh, you're going to face many troubles. He's saying basically, listen, in spite of the crisis. So there had to be some kind of crisis. And there was a, a, there was a genetic over broad swipe crisis, which he'll get to in the next paragraph. But what do you think was some of the, what were some of the crises that they may be facing? No takers on that? Sir? Well, there again, I don't, I, I think what Paul is talking about here is, as, we, as I'm reading in my mind, I've already read the chapters going, there's a crisis that could very well be persecution of the Christians. There's some type of crisis that's going on. Now, as we find out in a minute, he, he is going to echo the words of Jesus. He's going to, he's going to use uh, hyperbole. He's going to use extreme wording here in a moment to make a point to re reiterate what Christ said about the times are short. But there's some kind of crisis here. And, and what he's doing is, whether it's local persecution or problem in the city of Corinth or whatever, but because of the distress, Paul's saying there, there's a definite advantage to remaining single. He's not elevating singleness over married. He's not elevating married, married life over singleness. What he's basically saying is, is like, hey, with, with what is going on, it might be best that you remain single if you're single. okay. And also because of the stress, as a married man, you need to stay married. He said, don't change your circumstances. Don't change your situation in light of what's going on. So why would it be easier to stay single if there's persecution? Read into the, read into the, the scripture here. What would, why would it be easier to be single if Christians are being persecuted? Because you only have to be concerned about yourself. I only have to be concerned about yourself. Hurt me. Throw rocks at me. Tell me I can't, I can't eat, I can't shop here. Tell me I can't walk down this street. Tell me whatever you want to tell me. Fire me. Okay. But threaten my children. Threaten my wife. See, that adds a little bit more pressure, especially if lives are in the balance. If literally there was the persecution that, hey, it's going to cost you your life. So Paul's saying that. And he says, but if you're married, stay married. Why would you stay married if you, stayed mar if you were already married? That's it, brother. Absolutely. So he's saying, look, don't change, don't change your circumstances. I'm not giving you liberty to, to divorce. I'm not giving you the liberty to leave your spouse, nor am I encouraging you to get married, okay? Because he's already talked about it. Everybody has their own gifts. Some, are, some can be, remain unmarried, but some people need to be married, 
All right, so he understands that. There again, we're, we've already had two weeks study here, so we're trying, I'm trying to bring all this back in so we understand this chapter, this part of his, his letter, uh, with, with the full understanding of what he's writing about. So it's, it's not he's given liberty. He's just saying, listen, right now with the present circumstances, you might need to, whatever situation you're in, stay there. It's an echo of what he's already said, said previously, okay? Um, verse 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Who does that sound like? Who else echoed quite frequently the time was short? Jesus. Yeah, definitely. definitely there's, a, there's definitely a pointing to the words of Christ here. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they don't or they do not. All right. So, Brother Jim, you don't have to act like you're married, brother. Okay. According to Paul right there, you just don't have to. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who were buying something as if that it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not, as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Talk to me. Let's talk about this. What is Paul Implying, I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit. He's definitely using hyperbole. He's using extremes here to make a point. What do you feel like he, his point he's trying to make here? Jesus is coming back quickly. He's coming back quickly. And that we should live as though he would come back at any, any moment. He's not saying here you should neglect your family. He's not saying here you shouldn't mourn. He's not saying here you shouldn't be happy or you shouldn't shop. His point is this, that we need to live every moment as if Christ is about to return and focus on Christ's return. That is what's most important. And let that be your driving motivation for all that you do. What, that's exactly what he's, he's implying here. Having a family, weeping, rejoicing, having possessions must not get in the way of following hard after Jesus and walking in obedience. And let's face it, that happens at times, doesn't it? He's going to keep going here. He's going to keep talking about the advantages of being single as opposed to being married. And not that, you know, and, and, and we pretty firm, we're pretty certain that Paul at this point is not married because he refers to himself being like him, being single. It's not as if he's saying that's the best way because he's single. He's not justifying it. Himself, because as you get to this chapter, he's going to be very blunt, very honest with, their, with, with the reader. But he's just trying to point out as a spiritual father. Listen, this, this is what's in your best interest, considering all this happening and not to mention that time is short. Jesus is coming. Focus on that. Alex? All of it. Yes. Absolutely. So the emphasis, the, the, the heavy evangelistic emphasis, like, hey, listen, we got to get this done before Jesus comes back. Absolutely. He'll be back in like 40 years. He's, we got to get this moving. We got to get the ball rolling. Like, so a lot of times his, the things that he, he, he emphasizes are, are with that urgency. And there's some things that he may uh, not necessarily glance over, but things that he doesn't necessarily, you know, he's not trying to upset the, the drastic social order. That That's right. Because of that. Or change it. He's not trying to change that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. And aren't we, aren't we commanded by Christ himself that we're to live with the urgency of his return at any moment? And that's even echoed through the writings of Paul and, and Peter as well. And of course, John the Revelator. I mean, there's no doubt when you start reading Revelation, there's, we should live with the urgency of Christ's return at any moment. Just because he hasn't come back doesn't mean he's not. And if he hasn't, I always, I always framed it this way. Years ago, it just popped in my head. 
If he didn't come back today, he's just one day closer to coming back. See, and that is the reality. We don't, no man knows the hour. Nobody knows when it's going to happen. But it's going to come like a thief in the night when we're unawares, when we're not, a, when we're not looking for it. He's going he's to show up and he's going to take those. He's, gonna be, he's looking for a bride who is spotless, who is white without wrinkle, her garments, who has her lamps trimmed. I mean, you can look at, uh, at the New Testament, Christ's words. That's who he's looking for, those who, who are loving his appearing, those who are waiting and looking for his appearing. And that's the way we ought to do every day. We get so busy with our lives, and, and I'm guilty of it. This is not, I live in a glass house, but we get so busy at times. Okay, if I preach for a minute. We get so busy at times with our agenda, with our day, that we get up. Sometimes we fail to pray and or spend time with the Lord. We fail to realize that, hey, today may be the day. Today, before you lay your head down tonight, it may be the day. And we, we sometimes forget we should live every day with purpose, with urgency, as if today is the last day and trying to reach our fellow man for the kingdom of God. Amen? All right, I got a little preachy there, but I think we need that. I mean, I, this is burning within my heart. We have to be prepared. We have to be looking. Verse uh, 32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he, ple- how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affair. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her, how she can please her husband. I don't, know, I don't know many wives are worried about that. But anyways, we'll, we'll keep going. All right. I, <laughs> sorry, ladies, that was just a joke. I, I promise you. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you. Hear him. I'm not trying to put restrictions. I'm not trying to put restraints on you. I'm not trying to bind you. I'm not trying to take your liberties away. But that you may live in a right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. Considering that Christ could come back at any time. Considering the persecution that the church would go through, would be facing. He's saying, listen, it's just, it's just easier if you're not married. It's that simple, Right? He recognizes that a person that doesn't have family responsibilities, they are more free, you're more free to serve God. When the pastor calls a work day, you're more free to come up here and, and serve the Lord through, through, through working. Right? I mean, I'm using that as a joke. But truthfully, that, that's, that's it. It's, it's, it's you can, you can, you're, you're, you can, how do you, how do you want to phrase it? You can pick up a stranger who's in need and minister to them but not, and not worry about, Hey, I've got to get home to do this, or I've got to make sure I do that. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. Um, there again, he's not restricting us. He's just saying, think about it. And, and it's true. I love the Lord. The Lord comes first in my life, but I can tell you right now who comes second. And I don't, you know, I jokingly say a close second, but she is. I mean, my wife is second. And there's, there's times that, not that she preempts the Lord, but hey, I, I have to take care of her. I've got to help her. There's, there's needs there. Um, and, 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 and so it is with my children. Thank God that they're older now. It is not as prevalent, but absolutely. And that's what Paul is saying here. He does not say that this to condemn the married person. In fact, Paul is saying this is how it should be for a married person. He's saying, listen, if you're married, your spouse should be important to you. So he's not, he's not condemning this. He's not saying don't. He's saying, he's saying he's confirming the fact that it is right that you have a divided uh, allegiance. Not that 
your spouse comes before God, but he understands the importance of your responsibility to take care of your spouse and your children. So he's not condemning it whatsoever. Anything he's saying, look, I realize this is the way it is, and that's why if you're not married and you can remain single, that might be what the best plan is for you. Not one is elevated over the other. One is not more spiritual than the other. It's just life, okay? All right, verse 36. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. Absolutely, he says. It's not sinning. All right? They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own heart, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. There's no wrong here, right? So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. I think that's pretty self-explanatory what Paul's trying to say there. One's not better than the other. It goes back to what your gift is. If you look earlier in the chapter, he talked about your gifts. It's speaking about those who are able to stay single and not be tempted by the flesh and the world. And those that have the gift that, hey, I have the gift of marriage. I could not stay single. I had a desire to get married. Um, so I did. I sought out the, the most beautiful and, and honorable and Christ-like woman I could find. And I'm not making a joke there. There's a joke I could, but I'm not. I'm being very sincere. And, man, I did everything I could do. Swoo her. Because why? I knew I couldn't live as a single man. Yeah, not that I was sinful and had un raging passions. I was just what we'd call a red-blooded American young man, right? And I, I knew that I could not stay. I could not stay single and stay godly. So I said, all right, Lord, and look how God paired me with the perfect woman for me. 34, almost 35 years later, we're still married, and probably 20 of those years have been happily married. And for me, it's been like 35 perfect years. For her, it's been about 20. And, uh, and how we, we work together in ministry, which is our calling. See, just like you have a calling. Yeah. So the Bible says the man that finds a wife finds a good thing. And... Uh, and I have found a good thing. He goes on to say in verse 39 and 40, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he, he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. And basically, he, he's, he's saying as it pertains to widows, a widow can remarry as long as the new guy is a believer in Christ. Don't be unequally yoked there. Um, but in Paul's opinion... If she'll, if she'll stay single, she'll devote herself to the Lord, she'll be a whole lot happier, right? Right? And he goes on to say, I believe this and I think God agrees. That's what he's saying there. Okay. Before we move on to chapter 8, any, any questions about that? I, kinda, I didn't mean to go real fast, but a lot of that's pretty, just kind of closing out the chapter, what Paul had said the, in the previous verses. Any questions? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and that makes it it makes it tough. And it wasn't unusual in this time period uh, that men would 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 you know would, would travel to to work or travel uh, in their business. And it wasn't like they had airplanes. We talked about airplanes earlier and things like that. No, it was by foot, it was by ship, and they could be gone. Um, but yet the idea is there's an un, any, any listen. There's an underlying. It's not even underlying. It's in your face message about marriage uh, throughout the Word of God. It's supposed to be lifelong. 
and there's supposed to be commitment to it, and, and, and that's the way God designed it. I always go back and say this, and one day hopefully I'll do this research a little bit more on it, maybe, maybe teach on it or speak on it. The, the marriage is God's picture to the world, one of God's pictures to the world of what the relationship between Christ and the church is supposed to be, and it's very special. Uh, he, he, uh, he used it to describe that relationship. That's how special it is to the Lord. Amen? All right. Now, and that's not putting anybody down. I'm just saying. There's, sin, there's been sin in my life that's, that's, that's ruined the, the image of Christ in me to the world. So uh, there's no condemnation there. All right. Any more comments or questions? So I don't want to just blow through this. I want to make sure. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. Singleness is not more spiritual than married life, nor married life more spiritual than singleness. You know whether you can stay single or not. If you can, he encourages you to stay single. If you can't, he encourages you to get married. Just make sure it's to a godly person, right? But always live as if today is the last day before Christ returns. So, okay. All right, we all clear? I look like I'm putting you all to sleep tonight. Is it the weather or is it the teaching? Is it because it's cold? I got it cold and you're damp. We can turn the air up if you're too cool. Okay. All right. We're going to go on to chapter 8. Now, what you have to understand about chapter 8 is chapter 8, a lot of these chapters, just like chapters 1 through 6, uh, were, were Paul covering some things he felt like he needed to cover that he knew about from the leadership standpoint that were to come from him. Chapter 7, he begins by answering the questions uh, about marriage, remarriage, and things like that. Chapter 8 begins... He's answering another question they had written him about, but it takes him three chapters to answer it. So we're only going to get through, we might get through all of eight. It's only 13 verses, uh, but eight is not the end. You have to go all the way through ten. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a little bit about what he says in those other chapters. Otherwise, it's going to leave us hanging in confusion, and I don't want confusion. All right. So just know that, but as we study the next three chapters, they're all concerned about... Paul, or he, Paul is concerned about answering the question, as he'll answer here in a minute, right here in a minute, about foods offered to idols, okay, or sacrificed to idols, okay? So let's begin there in verse 1. We'll read 1 through 3, and, and we'll kind of set the table here. Now about foods sacrificed to idols. We know that, and notice the quotes, at least in, my, my, in, the, in the NIV, he's quoting something here. We all possess knowledge, okay? That goes back to chapter 1 where he's talking to them about how knowledgeable they are, okay? But knowledge puffs, us, puffs up while love builds up. If you're a highlighter and you write in your Bible, that is going to be the basis for the next three chapters right there, okay? That one verse he is going to, through meats offered to sacrifices and things, he is going to... He may not repeat it a lot, but that is the crux of the next three chapters. Actually, that is the crux of the Christian walk right there. Okay? All right? So he says that. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So after addressing the question about marriage and singleness, Paul now addresses the question they asked in regard to eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now... The background for this is you have to understand, I know we, we've hit this over and over, we've got some folks that are in here from the other classes that took a night off, so this, this, the, the, the conditions of the city of Corinth was that it was, it, there's a lot of temples with a lot of false worship, 
And basically what, what the concern is, is just like the, the religious system of Ju- Judaism, there were sacrifices that were made uh, to these false gods. There was, a, there was idol worship in temple. That was the primary way of worshiping these false gods is there would be an idol in the temple and you'd go to this temple and part of the worship, the primary way of worshiping, although there were some other ways, was offering an, a, a sacrifice to these idols that represented these gods. And they had multiple gods, they had multiple temples. Um, uh, the meat offered on pagan idol altars, rather, was usually divided into three portions. Uh, Jew, the, 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 the sacrifices that were made uh, in, in the holies of holies, or uh, not, just, not just atonement, but even the daily sacrifices, depending on the sacrifice, why it was given, a lot of times what would be happening was they would sacrifice an animal, Part of it was burned up, depending on the sacrifice. Part of it was given. If it's a fellowship offering, you would eat it with the priest. But the priest would get a portion of it. It's very similar to what we're seeing here. Here, There were three things that would happen to it. Some of it you, you would keep. Some of it would go to the, uh, in the temple they had, I hate to call them restaurants, but markets for the better. And you could actually go, part of the worship would be go to a, a a temple, I'm sorry I'm stumbling over my words, but I'm trying not to read my notes, if that makes sense. I, want to, I don't want to be reading to you. So you'd go in, you'd make a sacrifice. Part of it would go to the, to the, to the high priest of this false god. Uh, part of it you, you, you could keep. Uh, part of it would go to the place there within the temple that you could eat, because that's really the issue Paul is dealing with in this, these three chapters as we get into it. And then some of it would be sold at a meat market. Okay. So the concern was that these Christians who had converted from this form of worship, all right, what, is it okay for me to go to these temples and worship? Or not worship, they wouldn't say worship. Is it all right for me to go to these temples and fellowship with my friends who are unsaved and share a meal with you in the temple where there would be meat offered to idols? Is it okay if I'm invited over to a friend's house to eat that's unsaved and they're serving meat that's offered to idols? What, what about buying meat from the meat packing place if it's been sacrificed to false god idols and so just like with the marriage question was a real issue what if i'm married to an unbeliever now this was a real issue okay this was a real issue this isn't them trying to skirt around uh and, and get away with something what do we do does it defile us do do we eat with pagans at their temples or do we eat this meat and so that's kind of what they're facing and he revealed what paul revealed is that they were arguing about the wrong point here and he's going to de- he's going to deal with this all right and, and let the cat out of the bag he's going to say if you don't know the meat's been offered to idols it's okay it's, it's okay if you know it has been because I, I need to let you cat out of the bag because he kind of really covers most of that in chapter 10 as he concludes this part of his letter if you know it's been offered to an idol then don't do it but not because it defiles you, but because of the effect it will have on the unbeliever who's actually asked you about it. It's about your testimony. See? And so that, that's what Paul, he's saying here, he's saying, look, and you're, really, you're, you're really asking the wrong, um, the wrong question here. Uh, the real issue wasn't the condition of the food, but the conscience of the person who was eating it and the person who was fellowshipping with that person. Okay? That, that's really the issue here. So, so before talking about the food, Paul begins by talking about the principles of knowledge and love. Okay? Both knowledge and love, I love this, okay? both knowledge and love had an effect on our lives in that each makes something grow. 
Okay? Each makes something grow. Um, when it comes to knowledge, it will puff you up. If knowledge, if you don't guard knowledge, if you're not careful with knowledge, it puffs up your ego. We know from chapters 1 and 2 that the leaders of this church had an issue with ego. What they knew. They were in authority. And he's saying, listen, knowledge is not bad, but it definitely has to be governed. You have to be careful, otherwise it will puff you up. That word puff means to inflate, to make proud, okay? Uh, superior knowledge will always lead an individual into arrogance unless a deliberate effort is made to prevent it. It really will. We, we do, sometimes we like to put on demonstration what we know. It's okay to put on demonstration. That's how we teach others, that's how we lead others. But we have to be careful that we don't use that to our liberty in this case, it's going to, not to use it to cause a younger Christian to stumble. In this case, brother. Knowledge is gained, but yet wisdom is a gift. Absolutely. That's right. Without wisdom, that knowledge can be misused. Absolutely, and so knowledge can very easily puff up the ego, where love builds up others. See, and that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the crux of this is being a more mature brother when it comes to these kind of issues. Okay, all right. So we'll go. Like I said, hopefully this this will will pan itself out. Um, Christian behavior is founded on love, not knowledge, and the goal of the Christian life is not knowledge but love. We want to know more about the Lord, or we want to know the Lord more. But so the perf- for the purpose that our love becomes more perfect in the sense that we, we love, because that is the foundation of Christianity. Knowledge makes us feel important. It is love that strengthens the church. See? Danny, I hear your owl going off, buddy. Yes, Ed? It can be, yeah. As you, if you, you know, want to edify somebody else, you're giving of yourself to edify. That's others. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, serve others, and that's what Christ wants us to do. Absolutely, He does, Brother Jim. One commandment that Jesus gave His disciples on the last day or so that He was with them before He was arrested, He gave them a new commandment. To love one another. That's correct. And he didn't give it to them just once. He gave it to them either two or three times. So it must have been very, very important. Very important, yeah. That he kept repeating that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and and there's an old saying, I don't know how this plays, it just popped in my head, so I'll be obedient. If it doesn't apply to this, we'll just move on. But people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. See, and there's a lot of, there is a lot of truth to that. Love, okay. Verse 4 says, and we'll, we'll, like I said, that, that's the basis for this. So he said, you're, you're looking at the wrong issue here. He says, you're, you're focusing, you're majoring on the minor here. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that, quote, an idol is nothing at all in the world, end of quote. So he's quoting something, probably quoting something they have said. Go continues, and that, quote again, there's no God but one. He's quoting scripture there, we know for sure. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, 
quote-unquote, and many lords, quote-unquote. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So he acknowledged that those... Listen, what is he acknowledging here? He's acknowledging that those who were arguing that it's okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, he's, he's saying, technically, you're correct. He said, technically, you're correct. Okay? Yeah, you're right. We know there ain't but one God. We know the food that we eat doesn't defile us. Jesus declared that all food was acceptable, which was against the Jew Jewish custom, because we know they had a list of laws. And we know uh, here, and then we also know Peter had the vision uh, uh, on the rooftop about get up and eat. Of course, we know that applied to Gentiles being received into the body, but you can't deny the fact that what God has said is clean. It's clean. He, he, he declared it right there. So... Um, so technically he's saying they're correct, technically. Because there's one true God, idols are not competing gods. Now we know there is a God of this world, he's Satan, but he's not a competing God in the sense that he's not equal to God, strong as God, uh, right? I mean, we, we know that. Idols are therefore nothing in the world and are only so-called gods. And I don't, okay, I've got to go to chapter 10, okay? Because if I, if I leave that right there and we go no further, if, if you know your word, you're going to say, but pastor, you're incorrect there. Okay. Because in chapter 10, Paul's going to tell them, and, and he's going to cover some of it here too. He's going to cover it here. But in chapter 10, he's going to talk about you should not be going into temples to eat meat offered to idols. Because there's you're, you're having dinner with demons. Because the reality of it is, we know that there are demons behind the idols. The idol, is, is, the idol has no influence over me. Am, am I making sense here? I want to make sure I'm making sense. The idol, this has no influence over me other than what I give it, is what he's saying here. And, but behind Whataburger, there may be demons. Behind what is confusion people, behind what is drawing people away from the truth... There's definitely demons. For instance, this may be a bad example, okay? And this is not my notes, but i got to give an example here. Me going into a bar, or me being around alcohol, is not a bad thing. Alcohol is not going to control me. Alcohol is not going to kill me. But there is demonic are demons behind the alcohol. That if I expose myself to them, and like I said, this may not be the best analogy, I didn't really think it through, but if I expose myself to them, now I've given them an influence over me. So I, make, I want to make sure I'm very clear with this. Very clear with this. Alex? That's right. It's just a representation of it, but it's what's behind it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, I'm, I didn't think that maybe that analogy through very well, um, but I just felt like I had to kind of give some kind of example there that, that's real, not just talk about Whataburger, okay? All right. So there, there's demonic activity behind what that represents. 
Okay? Because eventually Paul's going to get to, if you sit down at a meal and you don't know where the meat came from, it's okay to eat it. You don't, you're not aware of that it's been offered to idols. Because why? It's your, your knowledge of what's happened to it and what you believe is behind it. And then, but if you go into a temple where it's definitely demonic activity, it's not the meat that defiles you there. It's what's there that is defiling you and you need to stay away from. What, what you open yourself. Yeah, what yeah. Like I said, it, it, this is a three chapter. There's hard to, it, because it, he does. He's going to come back to this a couple times in the next chapter and of course in chapter 10. Um, and I'm hoping when we get done with it, probably in eight weeks because it seems like it takes us for, for long. But I want to make sure we, we get this. This, isn't, this is real. This is something that the church has to understand about being the more mature brother when we face some of these things of conscience. Certain things aren't of conscience. Certain things are of conscience. Okay? Any questions, comments before I... Yes, Brother Jim? You never want to give Satan access. Opportunity, absolutely. That's right. And so Paul's about to explain why this is actually not correct and that there's a better way. So he's about to, to say there's a better way. But not, not everyone possesses this knowledge. So there's mature, quote-unquote mature, in the knowledge, in the know, that we're exercising maybe their, their freedoms to, I can eat this meat because I know there's nothing behind it. There's nothing wrong with this meat. Okay? All right? Some people are still not accustomed to idols, <clears throat> that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near God. We know we are no worse if we do not eat it, and we're no better if we do eat of it. So Paul stresses that not just the conscience of the person eating the food was involved, but the conscience of the weaker person. And I hate to say weaker, because what is he implying by weaker here? Right. That's right. And so they would see this as wrong. It's important. If they would see it as wrong, and if they were to do it, it would defile them because they see it as, as, as wrong. Okay? Because they're spiritually maybe haven't grown to the place that you're at. In reality, I could almost say they're just actually spiritually stronger. In a sense. Because they're wanting to make sure that they're... They knew the activity was wrong before. They don't want to compromise, I guess is how I'm, how I'm trying to say it there. But Paul is correct. This actually could go back to where in Romans, I think, chapter 13, Paul talks about the same subject from a different perspective. He talks to the weaker brother and the, and the stronger brother. Okay, I'm kind of rambling over my words. And I don't know why because this was so good this afternoon when I was reviewing it from, from my study time. So... So, anyways, their conscience is wrongly informed. It's operating with the false knowledge that there's really something to an idol. Uh, they're not at the same level of understanding in this manner because the believer operating under the false knowledge, if the person participates in eating meat that was offered to an idol, then they feel they have sinned, they have defiled themselves. Those are my sub-notes there, points there. For the Corinthians who had the knowledge, Paul says, you wouldn't be any better off if you did eat it, and you wouldn't be any worse off if you didn't eat it. The battle's not worth the potential loss, though. That's what he's really saying here. He said, you're not going to be better off if you do or don't eat it. 
But you need to weigh, is, is, it worth, is it worth the potential loss of causing a younger brother or sister in Christ to stumble? Brother Jim. Years ago, this was always taught when we had the youth department, because the youth would always bring up drinking alcohol socially. They sure. Always bring that up. And I'd say, you're right. The Bible does not say it's a sin to drink alcohol. It says it's a sin to be a drunkard. Be bound to it. That's right. Now, I'll tell you, even though I know it may not be a sin, I don't drink because I might not have a problem with it, but it would be a bad witness. Someone else might see me. They say, well, if he's social drinking, I can social drink. And yeah. if they have a problem with it, now I'm held accountable because of my, my witness. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I always tell them, I said, it's just better just not to. You may not have a problem, but you may cause someone else to have a problem. Right, and it's not he's trying to be legalistic here, nor is he trying to tell us to be uh, hypocritical here. He's talking about being a more mature brother and your ability to lead that brother or sister in Christ, in other words, to lead them as a leader and speak into their lives. Um, you know, not that I'm trying to get on alcohol here, but for instance, uh, I, had a, I had a friend of mine um, when I was a children's pastor, that wanted to serve in children's ministry. At that time, to be a member and to work in a ministry, you had to sign, we used to have the contract, and certain things you wouldn't do. One of the things is you abstain from alcohol, tobacco and alcohol. And he came to me and said, man, I really want to work in here. And he says, but you know, we, we on occasion have a glass of wine when we have our meal at home. He says, what should I do with that? And I, and I asked him, I says, well, let me ask you a question. If I told you you couldn't do it, would that mean that you would not serve? He says, no. This is the more mature brother. He says, no. He says, I want to serve. I'm willing to give that up if that's what I have to do. See, that's, that's kind of what Paul is talking about here, isn't it? It's not so much of the object in this case of the meat. It's more of not being a stumbling block. Now, like I said, he's going to get on it because Jesus talks about, even in Revelation, but uh, in one of the Gospels, forget which one, <clears throat> he even talks about, going into the, the temples of false gods. That's a no-no. He's not, he's not authorizing that here. He just understands that you might eat meat that you're not aware of where it came from. Go ahead and eat it. Don't, don't, don't condemn yourself that way. But if you know where it came from, so that you're not a stumbling block to a weaker brother or someone you're trying to reach for Christ, then just sustain from it. What's the harm in that? And if you have a hard time doing that, then you have to ask yourself the question, why am I having a hard time doing that? What influence does that have over me? Because it's real easy to exercise our freedoms as being the more mature brother. But that's where I argue, maybe you're not the more mature brother. Maybe the other person's more mature because you're not willing to say no to something that's not really a doctrinal issue. We're not arguing, did Jesus die on the cross and rise again? We're just talking about, listen, that offends my brother. Here's a good one for you. Here's a good one for you. I'm going to get up and walk. Okay? This, by the way, is not open for debate. I'm just going to say my piece and we'll move on. I have every right as an American citizen to fly a Confederate flag. I'm an American. I have that right. I have that right. I'm from the South. I was born in the city that the, the, the um, civil rights was birthed in Selma, Alabama. 
You know why I don't do it? Because I don't want to be a stumbling block. I don't want my witness to be destroyed. I will not. I have a Jeep someone gave me. It's got a rebel flag sticker on the front of it. I had forgotten all about it. My boys pointed out to me, guess where that Jeep is right now? It's in my backyard until I get the sticker off of it. Yeah. All my tools are in the garage. I got to walk and get my tools because I says, no, I don't want to be a stumbling block. I don't want to offend anybody. See, so that's, that, does that make sense? That's what Paul's talking about here, see. He's saying, listen, you know, you may have the knowledge, you may have the, you may have the spiritual right to do it, but it doesn't mean you ought to. That's what he's talking about here, okay? Let me see what time we have here. We're, can I get to his logical stopping point here? Tell you what, I, we're going we're gonna to finish this. We've got about five minutes. I think I can finish it in five minutes unless there's a lot of discussion. Like I said, this is pretty point. I've kind of set the foundation. We're going to pick it up next week in, in chapter 9. So that's what my point is. This is a chapter, first three verses of a long dissertation here. Verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. We've just talked about that. For someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, I don't know if he's sarcastic, but it sounds a little like maybe there's you know, a little knock there. You talk about how wise you are, how knowledgeable. Eating in, idols, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be embodied to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Okay, it's, It is possible that the Corinthians here, I wrote this down, thought that they were, were helping the weak by doing this. Oh, it's okay. Let me show you. You know I'm really mature in the Lord. I mean, there may have been some honest innocence to this. Yeah, let me show you. Come on, let me take, let me take you. Let me show you. Yeah, we're going to go down here to this temple. I'll even buy your lunch. Come on, I'm going to show you. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. It's okay. I want to help you grow the Lord right here, right? It's very possible that was their approach to it. See, I put this down there. I may have the freedom to do it, but that doesn't mean I should. Christian freedom is not a freedom to do as we please, but a freedom to control our actions for the benefit of others. Just like our, our, our freedoms as an American doesn't give us, a, as a U.S. citizen, doesn't give us a right to do whatever we want, does it? It gives you the right to do what you should do. But it doesn't give you freedom to do whatever you want to do. I can't impose. I can't play well. You shouldn't. I can't play my music so loud in my house that it rattles my neighbor's windows after 10 o'clock, or even before 10 o'clock. Right? No, because I'm impeding on in, in their rights. So it's only, in here in the Scriptures, it only gives you a right to do what you should be doing to help others be built up. Okay, I think that's it. Verse 12, When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. That's a pretty powerful statement. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will not eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. He said, listen, if me eating meat's going to cause them to fall, then why would I want to eat meat? If me, you know, whatever, you, you fill in the blank there. If it's going to cause my brother or sister to stumble, then why would I even entertain doing it? It's maturity. It's being mature here, Okay. Did I just read the last verse? I think I did, didn't I? Yeah, I did. 13. To influence the weak brother to go against the, his conscience and thereby wound their weak conscience is actually to sin against Christ. The Corinthian Christians who abused their liberty might have thought it was a small matter to offend their weaker brothers, but they did not understand the offended Jesus. How many times do we do that unaware? Unaware. Unaware. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And he's not talking about legalism. Like I said, this is not legalism, nor is he talking about hypocrisy. He's talking about being a more mature brother here. Being a more mature brother here. So Paul condemns a practice that he acknowledged was, was, was not wrong because of the action itself, but because of the, the, the detrimental effect it would have on others. He says, you know, eating meat offered to idols isn't really going to hurt you, but it may hurt somebody who sees you doing it, who witnesses you doing it, see what he's talking about. While this issue eating meat offending to idols is not relevant to most of us today, I mean it's not in our Christian world, it may be in the Middle East in some places, the principle discussed here has many modern day applications for us. If you just think about it, we won't have time to debate them, maybe we can do or talk, discuss them, maybe we can do that next week, okay? Christians uh, should judge the principle discussed here, uh, excuse me, Christians should judge the correctness of their actions not only on the basis of what is right and wrong, but also on the basis of how their actions impact others. Be salt, be light. That's the gospel message, out of love. Now, in summary, and then uh, if you have questions or comments, I'll open the floor up, okay? We must unselfishly keep ourselves from any questionable conduct that could compromise or harm our Christian influence on those who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus. Better start driving better, brother. Better start driving better. We must avoid all association with or appearance of idolatry, which include any activity promoting the honor of anyone or anything above God. You know where, you know what, do you, okay, I'm going to say this, and I know I'm opening up a can of worms. I think you guys know I'm, I'm a patriot. But you know, some Christians worship their patriotism. Sometimes they put it up there equal with God. We've got to be careful with that. Sometimes we put our grandkids up there. I've seen grand, grandkid worship. Okay, I'll move on. The final point I'm going to make or statement is this. The Christ-centered law of love will cause us to voluntarily limit our Christian freedom so we do not offend other believers or mislead anyone by example. We must be careful not to influence other believers to go against their own conscience, thereby compromising their convictions. Got to be careful there. I'm going to end the, vid, the, the, the recording and then open up the floor just simply because I'm limited <coughs> how much time I can put on one of these. Thank you for joining our podcast. Here at Bear Creek AG, our goal is to help others know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Have a great week.